Father, thank you. Uh, just thank you for your perfect love for us that's manifested itself in your grace and your compassion, your kindness, your patience, your mercy, your generosity, so many things that you've shown us through your son. And the world is running away from him right now. As we witness or try to witness, people are not interested. But once in a while, there's one or two that are, and you're drawing individuals to yourself still. May we not give up. May we not get soured by the responses we're seeing today. May we be faithful to preach the word and to share the gospel about your son's death and resurrection and encourage people to come to know you and be set free and to be given eternal life. And we trust that um, they'll grow in you and make disciples of their own. So as we enter into your word, Father, that's what we're doing today. We are discipling. We are helping individuals to learn. May it go beyond our heads into our hearts and into our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are looking at Matthew 5. Lord willing, um, Isaac will be the right fit, and he'll come in and interrupt this series or continue this series. So we'll see what happens with it. But for right now, we're going to cover a few more passages. As we get into this chapter 5 and verses 17 to 20, I want to do a little bit of background. Remember the stair-stepping of um, first one being poor in spirit, spiritually bankrupt. That's how every individual comes to Christ. You can't come any other way. A lot of religious people in the world today, a lot of people who think God owes them something, but he doesn't. We owe him everything. The wages of our sin is death, and that's our debt that has to be paid, either by him or by us for eternity separated from God. People blame hell and the lake of fire on God, and it's really man's choice, man's decision. So as you look in this passage, Jesus explained to this crowd, this multitude, and you realize just the fact that they're out away from their normal routines, they have left whatever jobs or activities or responsibilities they had, they've gone out there, tells you something about these people. What does it tell you? They're what? Hungry. Hungry. They could be passionate. They're willing to sacrifice. This is important to them. This is a priority to them to come listen to Jesus. Now you'd say, well, it's because he's given out all this food. You ought to go back and figure out, has he fed them yet? Or is this after this time as you compare the Gospels? A lot of people had ulterior motives. A lot of disciples stopped following him at a given time. John 6, the end of John 6 brings that out. But here, he walks them through these steps, and as we explain to you, we talk about the um, passage last, or three weeks ago now for me, is uh, you are the salt and you are the light of the world. It's not that you're going to be, it's not that you might be able to make yourself into it or figure out some way, you are that salt and light. And we explain to you, that was, salt was an idiom to them. It was telling them, because of their passion, their interest, their hunger, their desire to learn, they had gone out of their way to sit and listen to Jesus. A 20-minute message is all they're going to get. I've made it last for a lot longer than that. But they didn't have a language barrier. They didn't have a cultural barrier. They picked up on the grammar. They understood the culture and the language, the, uh, whether it was literal or figurative. That all would, came to them naturally as they listened. They could focus on what these words actually meant. And that's what he was after. And so as they came in, he shared with them this stair step from verses 3 through 12 of being poor in spirit. And then blessed are those that mourn as they react to their sinfulness. They realize who they really are before God. 
And then the whole area were being gentle or meek and they submit themselves to God. This is what you need to do when you're leading someone to Christ. You need to help them understand their position. But today, oftentimes, sin is even brought up. God has a wonderful plan for your life, is a great track, but if you don't talk about the problem of sin, you've missed it. And so the people would struggle as they thought, well, I'm, I'm good. I can meet God halfway. I've got a lot to contribute. And God basically says, I don't want anything you're offering. Your righteousness is filthy rags to me. You must recognize your poverty, spiritual poverty, and come to me. So he led up to that, and then he says to this crowd who's listening to him, you are the salt, you are the wise, is the idiom that he would have been bringing up. They would have understood that. I gave you this little insert in your bulletin. I gave you a little paraphrase, and it helps to explain some of that in case I go too fast. They've given me a time limit, kind of like doctors. I now have 15 minutes for my sermon. Okay, good. I, I was just checking but I don't want to drag it out to where I'm losing you because you can only take in so much, right? And so as you're looking at this, they're the wise people of the earth. Now looking at your little handout here to explain it. That's what salt meant in their day. They picked up on that. And whenever the wise had become foolish, which is what the actual word is in the Greek, by what are you going to be made wise again? You're no longer wise, or those no longer wise are useful for nothing anymore except to be discarded and spurned by men. Then he says, you are the shining people of the world. An elevated city cannot be hidden. Neither does one light an oil lamp and hide it under the peck measure, but on the stone shelf, projecting from the wall, and it shines to all who are in the house. In the same way, shine your light before men, that they might observe your lovely ways and might give credit to your Father who is in the heavens. He's trying to bring out here, I'm giving you wisdom. I'm teaching you because disciples are simply... Learners. That's all mathetes means in the Greek. They're learners. They're taking it in. He's not assuming their relationship with God at this point. He is recognizing they're hungry, they're passionate, they're taking in this truth. That alone makes them wise. Wiser than those around them. Wiser than the ones that stayed at home or couldn't get out to hear Jesus share. And so they also then have an opportunity to shine that light. But he has to explain to them here. Even though these disciples are wise and they're light bearers, there is a misconception as we move into our outline. And he tries to explain to them in verse 17, do not think that I am like other teachers. See, they've got this fixed idea of what a rabbi is, what a Pharisee or a scribe or a zealot, an Essene person. Whoever they may have been, they know what they were like. And he's trying to explain to them, I want you to stop thinking that way. Because... I am not trying to abolish the law or the prophets. This is how it's going to come across in the rest of my sermon. Chapter 5, he zeroes in in verses 21 to 48. Zeroes in on the scribes, the experts in the law that we're going to see mentioned here. And he corrects some things. You've heard that it was said by scribes. You've heard that it was said by the scribes. You've heard these things that have been taught to you. He's really going to upset them when he corrects what they were teaching versus what the Bible really means. Then he gets into chapter 6, and what's the other group that he goes after? The Pharisees. And he corrects, verses 1 to 18, is a correction of the Pharisees, who love to be, make a show of things to people. They want to stand on the street corners and be noticed praying. So what three areas in chapter 6 does he cover? Giving alms, prayer, and fasting. 
Those were showy things that the Pharisees would do. So chapter 5, nails the scribes. Chapter 6, nails the Pharisees. And verse 19 talks about their treasure, and then he gets zeroes in on them, finishes out the sermon with an emphasis on what are you going to do with this information. So in this little bit here, though, he has to clarify something. They're going to get the wrong idea from his teaching. And he says to them, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. That's not why I'm here. That's not why I appeared publicly or showed up on the Jewish scene. I didn't come to abolish. I didn't come to nullify or to do away with or to tear down the law. These mosaic rules and regulations written in the Pentateuch. I didn't come to tear down the prophets, all the others who spoke for God, written in the Old Testament. I didn't appear on earth to abolish or repeal the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. That's pretty amazing. We can't fulfill the law. That's the whole problem. We break the law. We're really good at breaking the law. We're like little kids in a china shop. You ever turn your two-year-old loose and just let them start wandering when you're going into a, you know, the crystal and glassware and all this stuff in there? You go, go have fun. And you stand there talking to somebody while they roam through. Mommy, look at this. Oops. And it just disintegrates the place. That's what we've done with the law. We're lawbreakers. And yet Jesus says, I didn't come to do that. I'm not trying to get rid of it. Why would we want to get rid of the law? Same reason you'd want to get rid of the china. You could let your two-year-old go into an empty room. What are you going to worry about? Nothing. So we try to get rid of the law. We try to remove it from people or from around us so that I can't break it. I can't be feeling guilty or, or sad or make God you know, disappointed at me. There is no law. And so what you're seeing today in America is they're watering down and watering down, and they've been doing it for a long, long time, decades. Only now they're getting more and more brazen, more and more defiant, and they're bringing in things that God calls abominations in Scripture. It's not going to keep going. We need to have our hearts broken, be on our knees in prayer and with tears before God and crying out for the people we know, neighbors, coworkers, family members, whoever it may be, we need to recognize it's coming and not act like them who keep going, man, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since our forefathers fell asleep, things have gone on the same and the same and the same. There's no God. There's no Jesus. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's nothing I'm accountable for. So I should just eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow I die, I go into the grave, and it's over. Get the most you can get out of life, right? That's how people are living. Jesus goes, I found the balance in here. I didn't throw the law out, and I'm not intensifying the law like the scribes are going to try to do to you. Or water it down on the worst side of it. I came to fulfill it. The idea here is um, to perfect it, to accomplish it, to perform it fully. One, A.T. Robertson, which is a, a Greek scholar, he says this word means to reveal the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. The scribes, the Pharisees, and their religious leaders missed the whole thing. They missed all about the Sabbath. How could Jesus let his disciples on a Sabbath day walk through a grain field and pick grain? That's work. Then they not only picked it and put it in their pocket for later, they rubbed the heads off and worked some more. And then they ate it. How dare them. 
And we could go into a message on the Sabbath, and Jesus is recognizing the Sabbath, but he says, you got it all mixed up. My father works on the Sabbath. <gasps> what? I thought God rested. No, he ceased from his work on the seventh day of creation, this miraculous, out of um, breaking all the rules of nature to instantaneously make things. Bump, there it is, bump, there it is, bump, there it is. There's Adam, there's woman, and all these things. Bam! Then God said on the seventh day, I'm done. But he still works on the Sabbath. What do you think God's doing on Saturdays, if it's the right day of the week? He's working. You better hope he's working. He's holding things together. He's listening to prayer. He's bringing all of this into a, a, a perfect blend. And so Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, to nullify it, to do away with it, to pervert it in some way, like your leaders are doing as a kind of a hint. But in strong contrast, quite the contrary, I came to fulfill it and to fulfill it perfectly. So what did they crucify him for? What were his sins? He claimed to be God. That was a bad one, but true. He claimed, they claimed that he claimed to be a king in opposition to Caesar. That's not good. The Jews are using that. They hated Caesar. They hated having a king over them. They, that was nothing they wanted at all, but they use it against Jesus. We do that when we get in arguments. We go back to things we shouldn't be defending, but it works well to make my point, and I win the argument. That's what they were, all they were doing. They hated King Caesar, but they were going to pick on Jesus. Oh, he's trying to take over Caesar's spot. He's trying to be an alternate king. They made up things, and they said he was going to tear down the temple. He was going to destroy this temple. What a joke. Who is he, Mighty Mouse or Mighty Man or Superman? Or 46 years they took building that temple. You aren't going to tear it down. He didn't mean the physical, literal temple. He talked about the temple of his own body. But he came to fulfill it, and this he did very, very well. And he says there in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Well, when's that going to be? Is the law going to pass away? Nope. Never. It's being fulfilled, but it will never pass away. So what's he getting at here when he brings this up? He says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. Is the earth going to pass away? No. So we get the wrong idea because of a poor translation from our personal bias of what we believe Scripture's teaching. Let me give you a couple of verses, if I can find them here. Get myself back on my note. Psalm 78, just, just to reiterate for you. When you read the Bible, read all the Bible and let the Bible be its own commentary. Psalm 78, verse 69. This is the best thing you can do. You don't need a lot of commentaries. You don't even need me. But you need to read your Bibles. And then you see what's in the Bible. Psalm 78, verse 69. It says this. He built his sanctuary like the heights. And I'm jumping into the middle of a context. But he, then he compares it. He says, like the earth which he has founded Forever. The earth's not going anywhere. And there's many reasons I could give you to justify that as well. Let me give you another psalm. Psalm 104. The earth has been founded forever, according to Psalm 78. Psalm 104, verse 5. Just a statement about the Creator. 
Psalm 104 verse 5 says, He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. The earth's not going anywhere. You get a lot of teaching today, and I'm not sure why, but a lot of teaching out there that's claiming that the earth's going to disappear and God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. What they don't work with is, one, the word pass away here simply means to come to an end, the, the Greek word, as you know it. And the idea of the word new, a new heaven, new earth, doesn't mean brand new. It means refreshed. It's, there's two different words for new in the Greek, and it's simply telling you he's going to refresh the heavens. He's going to refresh the earth. He's going to make them habitable again for man because it's going to get really messed up in his judgment. So as you look at these passages, I'll give you one more. Ecclesiastes. This is just a test to see if you know where Ecclesiastes is. Chapter 1. Everybody know where it is? Book of poetry. In the five books of poetry. Chapter 1, verse 4. Here's Solomon writing, and he says, A generation goes, and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Isn't that really comforting to you? Don't you feel better that this planet isn't going anywhere? There's prophecies in the, the Old Testament prophets that we're going to walk on, the, or the Jews are going to walk on the ashes of their enemies. How do you do that if the earth was removed and started over again? There's some other verses that are going to take place or explain how this is going to happen. But the earth is forever. The heavens are forever. The, the, star, the sun will never go away. The stars are not dying. If you follow any kind of creation stuff out there, uh, even the world's creation. You do not have young stars. They just went up with a telescope recently, and I was reading some stuff, and they go, oh, we found a whole bunch of young stars. My first question is, how do you know they're young? So they have their bias, what they think and perceive. There are no young stars. God created all the stars. He calls all the stars by name, and he says none of them is missing. How can that be there? Scientists are telling us they're blowing up, they're changing, their new ones are being created. God says no. They're eternal. Oh no, now we've got to clash again. What are we going to do with all this? So as you look at this picture here, he's not saying what many think he's saying. He's simply saying here, until heaven and earth pass away, let me rephrase this for you a little bit. Here's how I would translate this. Um, and I'll give you the translation and then the explanation. It's actually a conditional clause. If heaven and earth, and it's subjunctive, I'm sorry for throwing these things out there, but if heaven and earth could pass away, which is never, then he goes on to tell them here, then uh, the law would pass away. He's trying to make a point that the law is more of a sure deal than even heaven and earth, and heaven and earth are a sure deal. They're not going anywhere. So what do you think the law is going to do? Remain forever. Guess what you're going to be learning if, as a believer, and you're, you're raptured, you're taken to the new Jerusalem, and you're on planet Earth reigning with Christ. Guess what you're going to be learning? The Word. Guess where you're going to start with your learning? Where you left off. Is that a strange thing, idea to you? See, God didn't start us over again. He doesn't take your brain away from you. You're you with a new body. The efforts that you're putting in now to grow in Christ and mature in Christ is the same place you're going to end up when you get there, and then you're going to grow and develop for eternity. 
There's levels of understanding in heaven based on what you did down here. Levels of reward, and I don't have time to go into that either. But as he looks at this passage, he's trying to make a point to them that heaven and earth will never pass away. But if they could, they would come to an end before any little part of the law ever would. There's eight subjunctives in here. That's a mood of possibility. He's going out of his way. That is not normal to put that many together. He's giving you a lot of ifs and possibles and um, probables and some things in here. It's the words, if you love English today, it's the would, could, should, might, may. Those kind of ideas are subjunctive. English has to spell it out. The Greek puts it right into the word. You cannot miss it. And as he does it here, he's trying to make a point to them that not the smallest letter. What's the smallest letter in Hebrew? It's, it looks like a comma or a little dash. It's a yod. It's the word yod. But if you take a yod and you stretch the tail down a little bit, it becomes a vav. If you take the, the stretched out vav and you kick in another little section to it, it becomes a noon. So if somebody's quick in their handwriting and sloppy with their, with their yods, they look like vavs. And you're going, well, who cares? Well, you care if you're trying to figure out what the person said. This is what he's talking about. Not the smallest letter, yod, or stroke, those little bitty additions to make it into a vav, to make it into a noon. They're not going to pass away. The little bitliest things, until all is accomplished. And again, the same word until there is, is used up above. And it's the idea, as long as with the uncertain, uncertainty of this vagueness that's here with, with the um, conditional phrase, He's not telling us the law is going anywhere. He's not telling us that heaven and earth are passing away. They will come to an end as we know them. The law may come to an end as we know it. There are changes being made, but it's never going to disappear. He's fulfilling it. I, as a Gentile, do not keep the Sabbath day. People have a lot of problem with that. Go check out Exodus 31. The Sabbath was never given to Gentiles. It was given to the Jews. So there's many things because we're not reading our Bibles in preparation for our eternal uh, service to God in the presence of Jesus Christ that we're going to have to learn up there. So they're going to point to you and they're going to go, you're in 101 when it comes to, um, and what language are you going to speak up there? Instantaneously given to you with the ability to communicate with your new body. But it's, it's just interesting to me. He's trying to explain something because he's basically starting out before he gets to the scribes and the Pharisees that he straightens out. He says, I'm not like them. I didn't come down here to twist it around and make the law serve me and then not keep it myself like the Pharisees. They were hypocrites. Phony as could be. That's not me. So Jesus is having to clarify that to them. And they're all, remember how they respond at the end? Chapter 7, verse 28, is it? What do they say? When he finished speaking, this open book exam, you, you can look it up for yourself. Amazed. Another way to translate that, astonished. Who is this guy? How can he even be teaching us this way? What's he trying to say to us? He says, I'm different. I am not only um, keeping the law, I am fulfilling the law. This is the point. But then he goes on to explain to them with, with this warning. In verses 19 and 20, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
So where is this individual going to be? In the kingdom of heaven. It's not that they're not making it. It's not a salvation thing he's talking about here. He's talking about how you live your life. If you are annulling one of the least of these commandments, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven brings up one of them. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's already categorized them. You've got a top one and a number two. Where do all the rest of them fit in? Underneath? Very good. So what would you consider one of the least of the commandments? Jesus wasn't asked that question, so I don't have an answer from him. Well, no, there, there's priorities. And he says right here, there are a least because whoever annuls one of the least of the commandments. So it's something that you think, this isn't important. This is hardly ever happens because that's what the word least means. Unimportant. It's an inferior issue. Insignificant. Very small in class and status. So it's, got, it's putting a ranking on these things. And there may be something. So I hate to pick this one, but... How often do you run into you should not boil the, the kid in his mother's milk? Within the law, how often do you have a problem with that one? You all you ever seen somebody just have a meltdown because they, they violated boiling the, the kid from the mother, the, the baby, in the mother's milk? They weren't allowed to do that. You haven't read that yet. So you're not reading enough of Leviticus and, and Exodus and Deuteronomy, you're not getting the right, you're not getting a balance, you're losing, missing some of your vitamins. Those are the goats here. Some, yeah. They're what? They're referring to goats in that passage. Oh, goats. Yeah, it may be. I'm, I'm just generalizing because I'm, I'm trying to make sure I don't take too long with this. Kid. Oh, kid. Okay, yes. Kid. Yeah. But again, when you go into the Hebrew, sometimes you find out the translation is broader than the English presents it. So I, I'm, I'm not going, I'm just bringing up an example. So that one you'd say, I've never heard of that. I've never seen anybody be upset about it. But how about keeping the Sabbath? That's a big deal to some people. Not just Jews, but even Gentiles. Some will tell you if you don't keep the Sabbath, you're following Antichrist. That's on a billboard over in Eugene. If it hadn't come down yet. So people are already categorizing the law. What do I think is important is the ones I really follow. Man, I am strict. I do. I never mix my clothing. I never weave, you know, linen with whatever, what's, whatever the other thing, with wool. I don't do that. But do you do some other little thing? So he's saying here, the, the, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments, whoever takes one that people go, oh, nobody follows that anymore. What's going to happen to him? Well, and he teaches others to do the same. So that's even worse. He shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He shall be called very small, unimportant. He's going to have a role of doing the janitorial, which is what we would consider a role. I love janitorial, but we would put it in, you know, a street sweeper or a, um, what, do you, what do you consider a low job? Okay, but you're cleaning bathrooms, garbage collector. We have certain ones we pick on you. They can make really good money. And now it's all mechanized, so you, can, you don't have to worry about your back. But if your can's too full, they charge you extra. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that another day. But as they're coming in here, he's trying to present to them that it's keeping the law and then teaching the law. Jesus always said he put practice over preaching. How easy is, is it to preach? 
relatively easy. I can tell anybody anything, anytime. How hard is it to practice what I'm preaching? It's a whole different thing. Jesus puts the focus on the practice, not just on the words. How did the Pharisees do? Matthew 23. They focus on the words, not on the practice. He says, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. They're hypocrites. We got a lot of people out there today like that. You're not one of them, are you? You don't come to church and, and worship and celebrate and enjoy all that we have, and then on Monday you're just doing just the opposite. Your mouth becomes a cesspool. Um, you're immoral. You're chasing women, chasing men. You're, uh, I'm trying to think of other, of the biggies. The Ten Commandments would be the, some of the biggies. Deceiving customers, dishonoring your parents, some of the things that would stand out. If you're doing that on Mondays and claiming not to do it on Sundays, you are a hypocrite. And if you're a believer and you're still doing that, which happens really easily with believers who are not in the Word regularly, they're not in fellowship regularly, they're not being called to account by other believers, they're not being held up to the standard Jesus wants, because when we get isolated with COVID, we create our own standards. And all of a sudden right now, it's okay to stay home and not go to church anymore. Is that what the Bible says? Oh, but it's one of the least of the commandments. To not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, well, that's, that's kind of loose. You don't have to worry about that one. So if I believe that, and then I teach other people, oh, just stay home. You'll get a lot better front row seat. You can hear better. You don't have all the kids making noise, all the distractions. You didn't waste gas driving over to the church and back. You, know, you see what I'm saying? We start coming up with logical reasons to not obey God. Fellowship is critical to the Christian life. Corporate worship, critical. And again, I don't have time to go into all those things. But he's trying to point out here that if you're one of those who is claiming these things and yet you are making void, nullifying, abolishing, repealing the least of these commandments, and then you're teaching other people, you're instructing them to do the same thing. You're directing them and admonishing them in a public assembly. That's how this word will be used. You shall be called least. There's going to be a lot of people when they get to the rapture are going to be saved, and we call it in our idiom, by the skin of their teeth. How much skin do your teeth have on them? Yeah, they're trying to make a point. Saved yet as by fire. 1 Corinthians 3. That's a real thing. First John 2.28, do not be ashamed at his coming. What are you going to be doing when Jesus shows up? It's not going to be an instantaneous pre-wrath or pre-tribulational rapture. He's not going to all of a sudden surprise! Because there's all kinds of indicators leading up to it of his actual return. So why would I be caught in the midst of adultery when he actually shows up? As a believer, can I do that? Subjunctive. Come on, answer me. Yes, it is very possible for you to be doing that. How do you get there? How do you move from this clear black and white uh, instruction from God, warnings about what's dangerous, having, not following through on the positive side of loving your wife, for, in my case, and, and being uh, respectful of what God teaches. How do I get from there into adultery? Compromise. Compromise, 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 compromise. I put myself in situations. 
desires of flesh. I've been around people that I ran from. Okay, not in the word because um, Psalm 119, 11, thy word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Treasured it. It's not just hit it like I memorized it in my brain. I've taken it in as a precious possession of mine. I guard it like you guard your gold, silver, jewelry, iPhone, iPad, iPod, computer. We guard them because our whole brain is in there. If somebody gets a hold of mine, there goes my bank account. That's scary in itself because you've already given someone the freedom to do that. Don't worry because you are to be anxious for nothing. You do the best you can. You turn the rest over to God. But he's concerned here with the idea that these people are watering down. And it's, it's wise people. It's people who are light, who are watering down, not practicing and observing what has been told, not putting the wisdom into their life. But on the other hand, whoever keeps and teaches, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is where, again, he's, he says the one who is following through, who not only preaches but practices what he's teaching, and he's doing, teaching the truth, he'll be great, he'll be superior, he'll be outstanding. This word carries the idea of being prominent in a high position, quite significant in the kingdom of the heavens. What does that mean? Do I take God literally? You go, well, I don't really want that role. There's something wrong with you. If you don't want to do the best you can for God's glory, there's something wrong. But I'd rather just be a janitor and just kind of sneak in, and that way I can get a little bit of heaven, but I can have a lot of fun on earth at the same time. How much fun does sin give us? I've watched people, I've warned people, I've worked with people, and just watched them totally disregard obvious scripture, not even my interpretation. But just a scripture that says, don't do that. They turn right around and they go do it. One, one friend we tried to work with, he was dead in a matter of four years. Sin kills us. It's like eating sugar all day, especially at bedtime. And I'm not talking about just plain old sugar. I'm talking about licorice. I'm talking about the stuff that sticks to your teeth and just rots all night. That's what we're doing with sin. Oh, a little bit of sugar isn't going to hurt me. A little bit of strychnine isn't going to hurt me. Do we have that mentality? This is what he's trying to tell them, and he's going to go in and teach them point by point by point. What's the first point? When we get done with this and get into verse 21, what's this? First thing he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. What's the, what's the context? Not commit murder. You, would you start with that one? Because people all go, well, that, that's a big sin, and I don't do that one. And he tells him, oh, yes, you do. We're going to talk about that next week. Guilty. What's the second one he gives him? You should not commit adultery. Right out of the Ten Commandments. And we go, oh, I don't do that one either. Oh, yes, you do. And he's trying to help them understand what the law was really saying and how they're claiming to be walking with God and yet they are lying to themselves, making excuses for sin. Get away from sin. People say, well, oh, man, the Christian life is so hard. It's so hard. It's boring. You sing hymns out of the hymnal because they're scriptural. They say, I want some excitement. 
I want some sugar in my life. I want something with zest. I want some drugs. I want some, something that's really going to exhilarate me. I want the same feeling I had with my wife when we first got married. I want to start over with another one. And then I want to do it again. And I want to do it again. Because it's so much fun and exhilarating. Proverbs 5 says don't do that. Only be exhilarated with the one. Yeah, it could get really expensive, but that's the secondary. That's, that's the lower thing. It's what it does. It destroys you. You're, it's literally eating you up and tearing you up, and people can't figure out what's wrong. So I, enough on that. As he walks his way through here, he stresses them in verse 20. He says, "You, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, and I mentioned earlier in a couple ways the scribes and Pharisees, trying to bring out this whole thing, the scribes were the regular teachers. They were the experts in the law. They were Bible lawyers, if you want to call them that. Where the Pharisees are more the orthodox pietists, religiously devoted, very legalistic. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses them, you've got to be an expert in the law and a pietist, devoted religiously to the point where your whole life fast twice a, twice a week and, and pray all the time and all the things that you're supposedly doing. He said, unless you're past that, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Uh-oh. What do you think the audience thought when they heard that? I'm in trouble. I'm not a scribe. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not able to do these things. He says, unless your righteousness, your lifestyle, which is just, it's fair and equitable in your dealings with others, this is the righteousness, this is what God is, is evaluating here, unless it surpasses. That word literally means to abound beyond. You have to have more than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Over and above, it's described by one uh, Greek scholar as it's just like a river overflowing its banks. So the scribes have the water within the banks. You need to overflow your banks. Any, anybody think they've reached that? You're pious. You're, you're devoted. You're alive. You can't wait right now. You're telling me, okay, as soon as you end your sermon, I'm going back into three hours of prayer. And I'm going to do it out on the street corner with a long robe. I want people to notice. Why? Because it's not about prayer. It's about me. But instead, you go into your inner closet is what he's going to tell them. You don't promote it to other people, but that's where you spend. So you're going to spend three hours in the inner closet? When nobody knows you're there, you're not going to tell anybody, oh, I just spent three hours in the, in the closet in prayer. Look at me. Am I glowing? We don't live like that. And we have plenty of excuses to tell God why we don't have to. I'm tired. It's hard work. You never answer me anyway. But did God command prayer? Isn't it one of the commandments? To pray without ceasing? To be devoted to prayer? And yet, how do we do? You got quiet on me, I must have hit a nerve. It's a nerve for me. These are all things I wrestle with and sometimes cry over as I look at my life. I don't want to make excuses. I don't want to water it down. I want to make a difference. I want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. And I, once in a while, there'll be an opportunity on our trip as we did a big loop that I didn't speak up. And you, you've got excuses. Well, they didn't want it anyway. Or I didn't have enough time. But when you do speak up, you find out people are interested. Aren't they, Fred? They listen. But they watch. 
Because if you're a hypocrite, you're in big trouble. That's what I really don't want, because if I really claim to be a Christian, it's like putting a bumper sticker on my car. Then i got to drive the speed limit. And I can't cut people off, and I can't honk my horn and scream out the window. But that's what God wants us to look like. And I'm not there yet. Don't ask my wife, but nod your head. Not there yet. Thank you very much. That's all you get out of her. No more confession. I'm growing. I'm learning. I fixed something on the trip. I was... I'd start to do what I shouldn't do when I'm driving, and I spoke up a number of times. I'm improving. I left my gun at home. But, but he's trying to tell them. He's talking to them about the kingdom of heaven. He told them in chapter 3. Remember what he said? I can't remember. About the kingdom of heaven. Repent. There it is. 3-2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling, telling them to change their minds. It's time. You've got to turn around. The kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. You look at this, and he brings up the kingdom of heaven, of heaven a few times. And in chapter 5, he gets into a number of them, and I don't want to get into all of them. But at the end there, um, uh, chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not words. It's deeds. Look what he says to them. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that person gets into the kingdom. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did, well, but here's our deeds. We prophesied in your name. We, in your name we cast out demons. In your name we perform many miracles. And he says to them, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Gnosko, I never had a personal relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I don't care what you're doing on Sunday. I don't care how you're impacting people. Wow, man, we got a great church. Thousands of people, we can't fit them all in. We have two services, three services. All of a sudden, we're meeting on Saturday night and on Monday morning, and whenever we can fit them all in. God goes, I don't care about that. What are you practicing? That's what gives you the freedom to say, I was poor in spirit. I came to you as a spiritual beggar, and God will not cast us out. I mourned over my sin. I became gentle. I submitted myself to you. I didn't like it sometimes, but I submitted myself to you. I trusted you. And on it goes through that list. But in Luke 16, 16, I want you to show you one thing as I close off. Miracle? Miracle? Huh? Huh? Okay. Luke 16, 16. I don't know how often you've seen this verse or read it. But look what he says here. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. What does that mean? That's America today. You, I have to work. When I do have an opportunity to share, and I usually want too much time, and so I don't do it often enough, but I have to work with people. I have to work. Bev and I were talking as we flew down to Houston for doctor treatment, and, and thinking, okay, what do you say to people? Because you can't ask them if they're a Christian. You can ask them if they go to church, because that opens up conversation, you can ask more. But, but what do you ask to know for sure that they really have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because most of them either don't, or they don't know how to explain it. So how do I know whether I witness to them or I fellowship with them? I'm trying to sort it out. And I struggle with that a lot. So I'll ask many questions and probe from many different directions. You spend time in the Word? 
Tell me about when you, when you came to know Jesus Christ. One guy came out and used a phrase like that. When you came to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, what was, what was that like? Why did you do that? And I ask questions like that, but it takes a long time to sort through. And then finally, after six, seven questions, you're realizing, I don't think they know Christ. I think they just have religion. How can they have all those phrases and say all those things and walk an aisle and pray a prayer and all of that, and yet they don't really know him? They're practicing lawlessness. They'll tell me about the girl they're living with. And the, I ask them where they're going. Well, I'm flying back to, to Missouri. I'll just pick on a state. And uh, well, what are you, oh, my girlfriend's back there. We live together. Uh, 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 something's wrong. You're practicing lawlessness, but you're telling me you're saved. Those two don't go together. I didn't like this sermon either. I didn't preach it. Jesus did. Wait till you get to a couple things of his clarifications. They're forcing their way into it. That's what Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23 are. But you owe us. We cast out demons. We perform miracles. We prophesied in your name. We're getting in. And he goes, no, you're not. You practice lawlessness, and I don't know you. Depart from me. Scary words. We need to clarify that. Satan has deceived America. He has made it look one way, and it's not that way. So many people think they're saved. They're going to churches for the excitement, for the music, for the friendships. They don't know Jesus. We need to come alongside. Challenge them to go farther. They'll expose themselves. They'll have no appetite for the word of God. No appetite for prayer. And they'll be practicing lawlessness. Now, it doesn't mean you get a big stick and you beat them. But that tells you, okay, I've got some work to do here. I've got to get some scripture into them so they understand what God really says. And then you're going to find them doing one of two things. They'll cut you off. Because they don't want you to put pressure on them. Or they'll repent. Which is what Jesus is trying to get this multitude to do with a 20-minute message. But he shocked them. Boom, 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 boom. Every, all the steps are going, what, 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 what? And they're amazed, astounded. But how many followed him? Few. Very few. Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. Jesus was very simple, very clear, very straightforward. Preaching to an audience that wanted to be there. No bribes, no promises of food or riches. They wanted to know what he was saying. Lord, give us that crowd. Help us with people around us to find those who are struggling, hurting, questioning, reach the bottom of the barrel because they've just been playing with sin. May we come alongside them and not give them five minutes, maybe not even five hours, but maybe we give them five weeks, five months, five years to get involved in their lives, to disciple them, and to stop making excuses to you that I don't know enough because none of us do. But to tell them what we know, pray with them, encourage them, challenge them, Model it for them as an example, but may we make a difference. And may we see people come to know you here. 
One, two, three. Not crowds, but just a few. And you give us the privilege of being part of that ministry that your son started. I thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen.